I find the reason that they don't visit their instructional designers because they're not always aware of the services that we can provide. And so they'll say, oh, well, I didn't want to burden you with this. And I'm like, no, please, I get paid to be burdened with this exact issue. So by all <laughs> means, come and let's check this out. Bring me your tired, your, <laughs> your, can, your poor, your Can you put your that on your masses. business card? <laughs> please burden me. You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. In season one, episode eight, we had a conversation centered around professional development for busy faculty. In that episode, we mentioned one-on-one consultations as a means for providing faculty development. At the beginning of each semester, our academic innovation instructional designers provide open walk-in hours that we call Blackboard Urgent Care. Although we use our learning management system name within the title, this time does not have to be focused on working within the LMS, but is open to any type of questions and discussions like course development, best practices, technology support, etc. It's an all-hands-on-deck approach to timely service and efficient support for the short on-time preparations. If you listen to our summer bonus episodes, which I highly encourage if you haven't done so, we decided to have fun, let loose, and do some experimenting with our show format. We called this the lightning round. We use the same format for today's show. I've asked each of our participants to share some of their favorite tips and tricks for course preparation and or troubleshooting conversations they've had with faculty during our urgent care time or at the start of a new semester. This will be a great time to ask yourself, did I remember to do this? And, oh, I want to try that. Where can I add that in? Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Celia Kuchwaitiwa from Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovations Academic Innovation Team. Joining me today are... Aaron Kraft. Stephen Crawford. Jeanette Senecal. All right, so like I said, today is a lightning round format. Let's get started. Lightning effect. All right. So my background... Bueller? Bueller? (laughs) (laughs) Disclaimer. My background is in online distance education, so most of my tips and tricks will be oriented towards working within an LMS. And that being said, I would suggest calibrating your grading schema and just calibrating your grade center in general before the start of the semester. Problems will often arise throughout the semester, and and it's at that point you realize, oh, I did not align the grade center with what's in my syllabus. So to prevent that beforehand, I would say visit your instructional designer. Also check out your grade center, see if its total point value aligns with what your syllabus is saying. I've had some major issues pop up. Uh, For example, this wasn't at ASU, by the way, but uh, there was an instructor who had to submit over 50 grade change requests because she did not calibrate her schema to what her syllabus said. And so, for example, by default, Blackboard's schema for letter grades will say something like 97% to 100 is an A+, 93 to 96 is an A, and it goes on like that. Well, theirs was something like 96.5 is an A+, and so on. And that little bit caused over 50 students to have the incorrect grade submitted to the institution. When I investigated, I found that there was a discrepancy between what she had in her syllabus and what Blackboard's default grading schema was. So, ouch. I'm going to say, you know, that's, that's important that, and I'm going to use the word grading scale instead of schema, that, you know, you want to make sure that you know what the technology is saying. If you have one thing written in your syllabus, the computer doesn't automatically know what that thing you wrote in your syllabus is unless you tell it. Right. And, 
And you can't always assume that all because you had it set up correctly on one course that when you copy it over, it's going to stay there correctly. It's one of those things. That's a great point to double check. Yeah, just having the comfort and knowledge that you're ready to go and everything's linked and set up and calculating properly, it's it's good peace of mind. And, and that's one of those problems that may not show up until students actually start completing assignments. And the students will notice. Oh, and the students will notice, but yeah, but but you can always check the table ahead of time. I like that you mentioned um, for the instructor to see their ID or whoever they have as far as support services, because having that extra set of eyes to go through your course and take a look. I find the reason that they don't visit their instructional designers because they're not always aware of the services that we can provide. And so they'll say, oh, well, I didn't want to burden you with this. And I'm like, no, please, I get paid to be burdened with this exact issue. So by all (laughs) means, come and let's check this out. Bring me your tired, your, <laughs> your, can, your poor, your Can you put your that on your business card? <laughs> Please burden me. Oh. And then that being said, with t- double checking your gradebook, I also find that it is beneficial if you turn on that student view and walk through your course. That can help to ensure that you're giving enough description to your students on what your expectations are. Does your course flow? Did you give enough background to assignments so that they know exactly what it is that they're supposed to be doing? And then of course, please, please, please check links. Are they working? Do they go to an actual live page? Are the videos still there? You know, that's a great point about checking the links. Um, So often our favorite YouTube video gets taken down. Our favorite website got redesigned. I mean, we're experiencing that because usually this time of year, university websites are being, new versions are being unveiled. So when you go double check all those links to all those services that we tell our students to use, you know, our LMS currently does not provide a link checker. There are some LMSs that have a button on it that will check links for you, and and maybe we'll use one of those in the future. Uh, but you go through there and click all those buttons, and even they stay internal to your course shell. Again, if you copy materials, it may not copy over correctly. Double check to make sure they they still work. But yeah, that's that's a really great point. Right. I've gotten into the habit of suggesting that if you're using a YouTube video, just go ahead and download it and upload it to a. No, can't say that. No, no. You're making a copy. <laughs> Well, Copyright I thought if it's on YouTube, was then my it's next sort of, tip. Isn't it public domain at that point? No. no. Okay. No. Shock and awe. Don't say. All right, this part's gonna get cut. <laughs> really? Yeah. 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 No. Don't download. Don't do that. YouTube's going after the downloaders. Are they? Yeah. <laughs> you you functionally made a copy at that point. So mm-hmm. busted. Listen to our next <laughs> IBD happy hour. <laughs> right. This is what happens when you live in China too long. <laughs> Copyright what? <laughs> There's no such thing. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Okay, so I'll ride the wave of that great tip, Aaron, and add on actually a question, and then I'll, I'll answer myself first. What are your favorite sort of hidden, useful Blackboard tools or, or techniques to, to get that last-minute panic under control? And the first one that I will throw out there is the date management tool. I think a lot of people don't know about it. And if they have copied forward a previous semester's course, it's a way to globally update all the assignment dates and discussion board dates and so on in one place. And a lot of faculty don't even know that it exists. It's hidden. You have to go through the control panel, the course tools. Correct. Yeah, it's a a bit hidden. It's not intuitive. It's not 
quite easy to reach, but that is a fantastic tool because everything's in one place. You see all the due dates on one page and you said that you can update them from there as well. Yes. Oh yeah, that's fantastic. I would have to say going back to the uh, student preview mode so that you can see exactly what the students are seeing. Good one. You can see what might be hidden, what might be showing that you didn't intentionally want to show. Again, see if everything is flowing for the student. Is it too much information? Is it too little information? But at the same time, you want to be careful that if you've written dates into the description of an assignment, that date will not get changed automatically. Correct. Yeah, so you're going to have to go through and look at those as well. But True. the tool you meant, that's why I rely on all my dates to be where you're talking and just keep it nice and simple. And then I don't, that's one less place to go change. And I appreciate the instructors who do put the date in the description, but they highlight it because I feel like then it's a lot easier for them to go back if they're going to, to add it into the description text. That's a good point. Well, I like the idea of trying to look at your course shell with fresh eyes especially before the semester begins. And the student view definitely helps with that because you can see what the student's seeing. Because uh, as we know, the instructor view is markedly different than what the students are seeing. And sometimes you're not aware that such certain links are maybe hidden, certain items are unavailable, right? So that's really nice. And if you can't look at your course objectively, maybe find somebody who can or even go talk to your uh, instructional designer and have them go through it. I think the idea is to try to make the course intuitive from the get-go. So from the moment the student enters the course, it's clear on how to get started and where to find the various essential course components. Um, it's always helpful to have a, an introduction video. So maybe your landing page for that first week of class, or for the entire course, it's up to you, I suppose. Uh, but maybe that landing page has an introduction video, who are you, and then how do I navigate the course? I think video is always preferred, but I have also seen uh, text introductions. So just something to, to show the students that there's a real human being that they can contact. I think that helps to reduce some of the anxiety anyways. And, and if you do this in advance enough before the semester starts, maybe have an instructional designer do a internal, unofficial Quality Matters course review. Yes. I also find that citing your resources and double-checking that you are showing where you're getting your resources from is... Very important. A lot of the times our courses are asking for students to provide their assignments using APA format. So we should practice what we preach and do the same thing with what we're using within the course. That's a good point. And I think also, too, for media, a lot of times we embed videos but forget to provide the correct attribution and citation. So that's a good point. Can I ask a question? What are your guys' opinion? I should say, I shouldn't say guys. Yeah, it's so, half women so in here. So gender. And, <laughs> I know, and right? What are y'all's opinions? <laughs> <laughs> Too much ginseng over here. <laughs> Seriously. What is your opinion on using, for example, icons instead of long hypertext links? For example, I noticed that some instructors will upload a document and it has a very long title. So the students end up clicking on this very long title to, to be able to view the, the PDF, for example. What about using an icon instead? So you upload an image of a, of a fancy little icon and then you hyperlink that to the document. It, it, you know, your instructional designer can do it in a few minutes, I'm sure, and it's not that tricky to learn. I think it's a, a quick way to make the course look a little bit better, but I'm curious about other opinions maybe. I like the look, but I also have to recommend that they make sure to pay attention to include the alt text tags in the <sighs> yes. image mm -hmm. so that for screen readers and, and others who have special accessibility needs, perhaps, they don't lose the ability to understand what that, that icon means. Great point. And, and I do like the idea of using icons, but I also 
want to point out that context matters. So if a student is looking for a title of a document, that may be what they're looking for. And so that's going to be a very important piece for them to easily find. One of the things I had done once upon a time was we had built a, uh, a style sheet so that whenever you attached a PDF, a PDF icon was added to the back end of the title of the document through the uh, hyperlink image. Or if it was a Word doc, it was actually a little Word doc uh, icon or or however, whatever type of document was, we had actually built some some special things based on what kind of file were you linking out to. Right, so if you're uploading a PDF, you'd want a PDF icon. If you're uploading a Word document, you want a Word doc icon, so on, so on. But you know, the, but also, again, I'm gonna use this as a launching point on context is that I think one of the things that we often do is we'll write, oh, read chapter five or read this document. And, and if you're using the module tool in Blackboard, that may be, you know, you get to this page, a student gets to a page and that, you know, or a faculty member using the student view and all they see is read chapter five and that's all they see. I think it's important to provide context to the students on why they're reading chapter five. What should they be reading for? And so I would strongly recommend that, you know, don't tell students to read X. Also tell them why they're reading X. You know, what should they be getting out of this? And, and maybe even, you know, start preparing them and planting the seeds of what the discussion board or the assignments are going to be about on the knowledge coming from that assignment. Is this something that can be included in the weekly or module introduction? Oh, I would put it on the description page of the reading assignment because we always usually have a separate item. Most, most people have a separate item for the readings. Sure. I would put it in context there. I do the same thing with a video. I wouldn't just embed a video and say, watch this. I would say, watch this for, look for, you know, and prompt Especially them. if it's a longer video or even a longer text. Even if it's a text. shorter one. Just why are we watching this? I always appreciate when an instructor takes some time to make it so that it's a conversational tone when they're, you know, putting a description in. So if they were to describe what it is that they're supposed to be watching something for, putting it in a voice that allows the student to feel like the instructor is actually talking to them. You know, we've talked a lot about consistency of look, and I think that applies mm -hmm. to the, the icon question as well. If you're going to graphically denote certain types of content or materials, be consistent across the course. I think that goes for the entire course structure as well. Uh, you want the course to sort of have an internal consistency among the various parts. The modules are laid out linearly, and the content within the module are consistent. So maybe you start with your lecture and you go towards the reading and then you have your assignment and then you end with discussions and then week two looks similar and week three looks similar. Of course, there might be some variations, but uh, consistency is definitely, I think it's key for the, the students as well. It Again, to go back to anxiety, when the students are seeing something different every week, I think that'll sort of be maybe aggravating or create a, a level of anxiety that's unnecessary. You know, one of the things I think about often as uh, we start up a semester, you know, we, we work with faculty. We have a number of folks who are working on their courses right now as we speak. Uh, we're getting the emails and they're asking questions. Some of those courses are nearly done and ready to go. Some, some have a little bit more to go. I'm thinking about those courses who either have no faculty assigned to them as of this date. And this date could be two or three days before the semester starts or they're reassigned two or three days before the semester starts. So you have either an experienced faculty member or, or a brand new faculty member who will be taking on a course for the very first time, and they may be seeing it at the exact same time the course opens to the students. What's some ideas that we can work with for them? I know one of the things I've seen happen a, 
a couple times to kind of kick this off is that a fact member will look at a course and go, oh, I don't want any of that in my course. And the first thing to do is delete everything. And so now we have an empty shell and they're starting from scratch. Um, my recommendation is always to not delete it, but hide it until you are definitely sure what you want and don't want. How do you guys approach that that brand new instructor to the course? We won't say to teaching in general, but at least to that course. How, how What's your approach to that? One of the things that I like to do, and I highly encourage faculty to do, is to create a course map. When you're taking a look at the course for, let's say, the first time, I like to lay out, okay, what are the readings? What are the topics? What are the assessments? What are the activities? So that we can take a look across the map to see how things are matching up to the learning goals or the outcomes, and then see how much content there is. And I always use that as a starting point. Even when I'm working with faculty, when I take a look at a course for the first time, I start to list out, okay, what is it that they're doing in this week? What's in the next week, and then start to have the conversations with faculty. Well, the assumption here is that the course is pre-built. Am I right? In some cases, and but we don't always use the master course model. And even then with online courses, I know some courses do use the master course model. It's not always followed. But with our face-to-face courses, you know, you have similar problems because there's electronic c- components. Well, and on top of that, you have courses that are changing from, let's say, seven and a half week to 15 week or vice versa. This is something that I've actually been working with faculty on. And what she has done is take a step back and actually go back to courses to take a look at what the original content was and kind of match up and see what she's missing now. If you're hired on two days before a course begins and you want to start from a blank slate and build the airplane as you're flying it, I just don't think that's a very good idea. But it's common. Yes. Is it? Mm-hmm. Because wow. the I think a lot of the times the instructor wants to fill some ownership. So it's hard for, you know, instructor to just take a course and start teaching it because they sure. want to they want to be comfortable with the content. No, I get that, but what is the standard time it takes to build a course? They say like 170 hours for a brand new course build? A couple different formulas out there, and I think a lot of that may depend on the comfort level of the faculty member, both with the technology and the content, the material, as a subject matter expert. But yeah, I mean, it's a pretty steep time investment to start from a blank slate, as you're suggesting. And then you have the ones who end up doing that, but they're creating it as they go. So it turns into a not ready-to-go model for the first day of class, it's a, okay, I'm going to keep working on this as we move along. Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest things to point out is most faculty are not on contract to build courses. They're contracted to teach courses. So, you know, you may have brand new faculty who were hired on two or three months ago, but their start date is not until the week before the semester starts. And and a lot of those folks, especially newer faculty, will spend a lot of of their time, their personal time preparing a course for the very first time. But some folks, they don't have that option because maybe they're moving, they have other obligations and activities, or they don't even know what courses they're teaching yet because they haven't been given their assignments. Right. And you can't expect somebody to work when they're not contracted to. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much the idea. I mean, you know, especially if they don't know specifically what they're going to be doing. Well, I would say let your instructional designer shoulder some, again, to use the word, shoulder some of the burden, be in constant communication with them. How does this look? Is this displaying properly? Do you have any templates I can use? Uh, what are your suggestions for getting the content in there? It's a good point. And back to that course map uh, concept, I sometimes suggest to faculty if they've inherited a course shell, particularly this is more relevant to an online or hybrid course, but 
in Blackboard, if they inherit a course shell that's pretty much already been built, they can get an exploded course map view of everything that's within the course at one time by using the tiny folder icon at the top of the menu. Again, one of those hidden tools I don't think a lot of people know exists, mm -hmm. but it's really easy to pop that up as a separate window, explode everything in the hierarchy, and print it out so that they can see globally every single link, every single item, every single attachment that's existing within that course at that point. And then they can use that to help inform their own course map as they build. Yeah, so these global views are very important. Uh, the global date view, the tree view of the, the course layout. Yep. All right, another lightning round question then, perhaps. Hopefully this one will be a little bit fun. Some of you may have run across the article last month in the Chronicle on the faculty satire piece called To My Student on the Death of Her Grandmothers <laughs> and the resulting... <laughs> Twitterverse conversations that resulted from tweet the storm. tweet storm, exactly, that resulted from the topic. The question I would pose to you, if you have faculty members coming and asking for some advice on how to structure policies in the syllabus, on whether to accept makeups, to deal with unexpected missed assignments, what sort of recommendations would you give to them? Oh man, I, and I get these questions a lot actually, I was surprised. It's tough. I think there's a lot of gray area sometimes. I'll often say, well, you know, what, what do you feel is best or whatever you heard? What are, what are your mentors telling you? I, I found that one thing that can be prevented is issues with uh, technology during a test. I know students will often say, oh, my computer crashed while I was taking the exam. Okay, well, I, had, I knew an instructor who said, okay, I want you to screen cap, you know, the issue. I want to see the ticket that you sent to Blackboard support and email that to me. And then I'll consider how to work with you on this. But until then, there's no proof. That's a good practical example. I take the I, I listen to the to the students closely, and I think this is something that I'll touch on a little, little bit more later in, in the next part about setting expectations. But I tell the students in my course because everything builds upon each other. There is no late work. I mean, you either turn it in on time or you don't. And the sad part is, if you don't do it, then you don't have the foundation for the next assignment, which is the foundation for the next assignment, which builds until you until the course is over. So you really have to be on top of things and you really have to keep up. And if you're trying to rush through things at the end, it's paced for a reason. And um, so I, I tell students there is no makeup work. So when I do have a and, – and, but I also leave the door open. Contact me. If there is something going on, your grandmother's passed away – you know, the university says I can request documentation and I and I will ask for it, I, you know, and we we feel bad for the for those students. And we saw the debate that occurred on Twitter where people said if it wasn't for a kind faculty member, they would have never finished their program during the death of, of, a, of a significant family member. But I've also seen students who've admitted the same family member has died four times in a, in a three semester period to get out of courses and get out of or, or get extensions on assignments. In my mind, the number one way to commit academic dishonesty is to ask for an unfair advantage, to ask for an extension on an assignment that you don't truly deserve. And while I, as a faculty member, do not want to be a cop and say what is and what is not counting, I do want to understand the student's position because if it's severe enough, I would recommend they talk to their academic advisor and ask for a compassionate withdrawal from all their courses. And, and I have suggested that on a number of occasions to some of my students. Some of them have said, nope, I, I'm going to buckle down. I can get this done. We've built And we built a plan for them to get caught up and get things done. And some have said, 
no, I think I can do this. And they didn't want to work with anybody and they unfortunately did not succeed in the course. And then I've had others who have said, you know what, you're right. Not only am I struggling in this course because of this situation, I'm struggling in my other courses as well. I should take advantage of this and try again next semester. And, and that way I don't hurt my GPA in the process. And that has provided a great opportunity for those students because it let them be successful in a way that they needed to be. So I, yeah, I, I try to be compassionate, but, but rigidly strong on that. There's definitely a lot of tension. And in reading some of the responses, there's tension between the need to have reasonable policies, the need to be a compassionate, empathetic human, and the, also the desire, I think, as a faculty member to not be played. It seems to be a very uncomfortable feeling realizing that, that it does happen and in many cases there's nothing you can do to prevent it completely. And when you find out the students have openly violated your trust, and I say students plural, and that the whole group is playing you, it hurts. And you, and you have a hard time trusting students again after that. Now, would your policy change, for example, if you're working with younger students as compared to, quote unquote, the adult learner, the non-traditional student who might have a full-time job and a family, and they're, they were just trying to make it through the week and they got the assignment in a little bit late, does there's that alter a, your policy? There's a difference between a little bit late and a lot late. Okay. And let, let, me, let me put it to you that way. My assignments are often due at 11.59 p.m. on a Friday night. And I do Friday night because of the fact that I grade over the weekends. And, you know, if I had it due, and I know some students hate that. It's like, well, I wanted to use the weekends. Well, here's the syllabus. Everything was put up in advance before the course started. I set my expectations early and communicated them to give you the opportunity to decide, is this going to fit in your life as it does today or not? And I think that's an important thing to do. Be consistent right up front. Set those expectations clearly. In my mind, the course does not begin on the first day of class if you're teaching face-to-face -face or hybrid, where you meet the students and hand them the syllabus and talk about it. It starts regardless if it's online or face-to-face -face, the day the course shell opens, which for us is three days before the first day of classes. And so therefore, my course shell is ready to go. All my expectations are laid out. These are the policies. This is what needs to be done. This is how we're going to do things. And I'm very clear about that and consistent, or at least I, I try to be. That's probably the best way is we need to all try to be as consistent as possible on that. By setting those expectations, I either, you know, the students will know what they can and cannot, for lack of a better term, get away with. And there are some things like, you know what, I'm okay with that. So for an example, discussion boards. I set my, my, this is what the expectations are, and then I'm consistent with them in the very first one. This is the assignments. And you know what, if you turn it in at two o'clock in the morning on Saturday versus 11.59 p.m., for me, I don't get too uptight about that because I was not up at one o'clock in the morning grading. But, I would be. I know some, and some are, and, and, and you know what? And in some courses, I think you should be depending on what you're teaching and, and, and what professional behaviors are modeling. There are some places where hard deadlines are hard deadlines because you're trying to model a certain professional behavior. And there are some places where it's like, you know what? I'm going to give a little leeway. If a student emails me and says, I can't get my assignment done on time on Friday night because of this situation ahead of time. And I say, you know what? Get it done by, by Saturday night because I'll finish grading it on Sunday, I'm okay with that. If a student emails me on Sunday with excuses on why they didn't get it done by Friday, it's a whole different situation. 
So there aren't necessarily hard, fast rules all the time. Sometimes there is a, a gray area and it just depends on the situation. Yeah. And, and again, I think it's very important for the faculty member to set those expectations very at the very beginning of the course and not wait until the very first face-to-face -face course uh, session if you're teaching a face-to-face -face class, but from day negative three in our case. Or post your syllabus to the uh, My ASU site early and let them know that when they're registering. So these are policies that you place in your syllabus? Very much so. Yeah, and they can be quite individualized. Uh, on a practical standpoint, I often recommend that faculty speak to their senior faculty and administrators in their area because it's a great place to get examples of text from the other syllabi and take a look at them and kind of get a feel for what the culture is within that particular subject area as well. Yeah, and, and we have templates that we've provided that provide a great framework to cover yourself in a lot of areas that meet all the university expectations. Right. It's set the stage from the very beginning. And like you said, with the video, you know, let them know you're a person who, who does things besides teach and you have a passion for this topic. Set that expectation early. I like that you brought up the um, talking with the senior faculty, but not only them, I feel like it's important to also talk to the other instructors who are teaching that same course in different sections. That creates consistency. That creates um, somewhat uniformity as much as you can create so that you're keeping some individuality, but you're still kind of going with the, with the group to avoid some of those student grievances of, well, how come this faculty allows everyone to turn their stuff in on Friday versus Sunday. I think that's a huge key as well in preparing is communicating with the other faculty. You mean because I said so isn't good enough? That's usually my go-to, but <laughs> <laughs> I guess we should all communicate. Spoken like a true parent. <laughs> yeah, going to say, yes, we need to, be we, we need to speak as teachers, not as parents. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, those were some great tips and tricks that everyone has shared with us today. I encourage you to also share some of your tips and tricks or last minute quick things that you had to do just to give us some some of your own thoughts. You can find us on our Twitter page. I would like to thank Stephen Crawford, Jeanette Senecal, Aaron Kraft, and our amazing producer, Ricardo Leon. Thank you for joining us today. I'm like, just amazing? That's it? No, I know. Amazing? I, I forgot oh. to come back to this. This was something I was supposed to come back to, and that's all. Yeah. I was trying to get it, like, pushed out. We call him corny, but the natives call him amazing. <laughs> just amazing. Just, He's just amazing, yeah. amazing. this time. Because my mind can't get past amazing, right? <laughs> <laughs> You have to add that in just amazing. <laughs> you can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD as an in instruction by design underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instruction by design at ASU.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation.